Welcome to Great Minds Don't Think Alike. You are with Julia, Sam, Callum, Alex, and and today we will be talking about emotions and dealing with them, physical contact media. And later in the show, we will feature an interview with... Um, we, we interviewed um, Edie Shepherd and Andrew Day from Monash University. They are the Disabilities Officers Elect um, for 2015, which is Really great news, and we wish them all the best for next year. Awesome. You can also like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash greatmindsonsyn, and you can follow us on Twitter at GMDTASYN. We also podcast all of our shows, plus special features like full interviews for our SYN webpage, www.syn.org.au forward slash show forward slash greatmindsdon'tthinkalike, which is separated by hyphen. And we are going to be talking a bit about emotions and how to deal with them. So, Sam, what are your thoughts on emotions? I think um, with the autism spectrum, there are um, there is a lot of confusion around emotion. Well, personally, I find, I think, like, it's the same emotions as people who aren't on the spectrum, but... It's it's felt in a different way. Um, like I think there are it's quite common to have the emotional extremes of emotions, um, both positive and negative. I think. I think we do get a bit shortchanged in that regard. Like um, a lack of empathy is often the first thing people think of in their minds when they hear you're on the autism spectrum. What people really need to realise, I think, is that we do feel the same emotions. We just feel them a bit a bit differently and. We're not quite as openly expressive about them. Is would would you agree with me there, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a big difference between like not feeling an emotion, which isn't true. I think many people can feel empathy on the autism autism spectrum. That's very true, and like being able to express that emotion to other people in a way which they understand. Also, I think that people might. Um deal with certain emotional situations differently to um, non-autistic people. So, I mean, I think, like, when my my great-grandmas died, I mean, most people just instantly cried. I was kind of more confused and kind of, like, dealing with, like, the logic behind it and, like, how how does this work? What does this mean? So, I guess I think I deal with grief differently. But at the same time, I'm I'm just as much in grief as anyone else. well, it's it's all very subjective as well. How how different people um, use their emotions or how openly they express them. I I think like to to be asked like why are you not crying more in the grieving stage? That's that's not really that productive because as mm. you say, you deal with. Well, it I mean, in your own like way. everyone was accepting that, but at the same time, it's kind of like I just did. I noticed that probably I was dealing with it differently. I guess everyone has their own different ways of dealing. And also with happy emotions, like, I mean, I'm probably not someone who will just instantly smile. I just be like, like not actually going around saying, oh, wow, I'm happy or wow, I'm amazed, but I'm kind of just feeling it and I'm not actually expressing it. Yeah, although I do find it, it helps if you can, you, you can kind of recognise when other people are doing that, if they're very explicit about their emotions. Like if you say something like, you look happy, you look tired... That um that can actually help you um in terms of being educated on emotions, so you can you can kind of just store that in your memory bank for future times and um know know better how to respond like mm. and then copy them when when you need to mm, absolutely plus it helps um it helps you become a bit more empathetic so you're more appropriate mm. in those situations. It's also a wonderful way of introducing a conversation like, hi there, you look happy today. It just takes the, <laughs> takes the pressure off finding that first sentence almost. Mm. 
I mean, do, do people find it a little bit difficult, like, figuring out what to do if someone someone else is upset sometimes? Yeah, I think that is a very difficult mm. thing. Um, I think it's probably where misconceptions about empathy probably come from with the autism spectrum. Um, a lot of people I know on the spectrum, um, like, well, they all do have empathy, and qu- quite often they report having too much empathy so that it gets overwhelming when someone else is distressed. Mm. And when someone on the spectrum gets overwhelmed, that often makes it more difficult to communicate. Um, so it's not just because someone's not reacting to someone who's in distress doesn't mean they're not feeling empathy. It can mean that there's so much empathy going on. Like, I don't know, for me, like, if someone's distressed and I don't know what I'm supposed to say to make them feel better, it's I feel like I'm, I should say nothing at all in case I say the wrong thing. Mm. I think that's a common pro- problem. Even Even in some situations... I think you don't even need to necessarily try and make them feel better. Grieving is healthy in many ways. If you've lost something, it's a, it's a lot better than just trying to move on with it, a lot less destructive. So mm. I find people, if they are sad, they just appreciate having someone next to them to silently share in their problems, just just to know that they're they're not isolated physically or mentally at by the their s- problems. At the same time though, I have noticed that a lot of my friends seem to go for me go to me for help. Like if they're they're in a stressful situation and a lot of my friends have also said like you you were really helpful when I wasn't dealing with something. And I think at the same time like it is a it is a little bit of a weird contradiction with that because I probably don't do what um most non-autistic people do, but at the same time I kind of let like just let people do what they need to do. So, like, if a friend's, like, crying or upset, what I'll usually do is, like, say, okay, why don't we just go somewhere, like, a little bit less public so you can... Um... Is, is that potentially, like, where having, having like, a less um, explicit emotional response can be kind of helpful? You always yeah, look a lot calmer. I feel like, like, if something is upset, I try to deal with it logically. If someone, instead of just going straight to emotions, I'm kind of like, okay, I assess the situation, I assess risk, and then I act upon that do so, people appreciate that sort of response is yeah, that why they come to you yeah you sometimes like uh, i had a situation where my, my, one of my friends was basically um having a bit of a they were feeling quite triggered about um some mental health stuff that was going on and she she was in like a fairly public place and i was kind of like okay why don't we just go for a walk let you calm down go outside where it's a little bit less claustrophobic mm. and then that's okay and she she was okay with that well, it's very interesting. So far, we've only really talked about how um, how we help other people deal with their emotions. What, I, what I'd be interested in knowing is how everyone deals with theirs when they have some very serious emotional uh, trauma. I suppose whenever I've been, like, really sad, I, I haven't cried in quite a while, but I don't consider myself to be insensitive or anything. I, I used to get very deeply emotionally invested in... Um, in my hobbies, like after every time St Kilda would lose a match, that would just send me off and into <laughs> tears. Essentially, I'd break down entirely. But um, like since then, I've I've kind of learned that losing a match doesn't mean everything. Mm. And uh, I don't know. I th- I think somehow I've just managed to apply that 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 level of um, emotional maturity to the rest of um, all my dealings. Like um, I've I've had some relatives in the past who have. Um, Got, gotten sick almost to a terminal stage but like you were saying Julia I I haven't necessarily felt too sad about that because I've had like been able to step back and take some perspective on it and I, I feel that served me quite well actually. 
Mm. Mm. I mean, I think what I've probably learnt is to actually talk to people if I'm upset, um, which is one thing I wasn't very good at. I was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to bottle up all my feels, all the feels, bottle it up, which is a bit of a problem. But now I, I've kind of gotten to the point where if I can have the self-awareness now, if I am feeling really stressed out about something, I will talk to a friend about it. And are you are you girls the same, Sam and Sarah? Uh, yeah, I would say I have like a slightly different perspective on this. Like, I think where my problem is, my difficulties are, is that I don't identify like how I'm feeling a lot of the time. Mm, like, I yeah. don't really difficult pay attention it? to that. Yeah, so often things will just bottle up, and like I'm really bad with things like stress. Like, I mm. won't notice that I'm stressed exactly. Until it starts becoming physical, like... Same here. Yeah, 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 like, I'll get stomach pains or something, and then I'll go, Eczema. oh, maybe I'm feeling stressed. Yeah, I'll, like, I'll break out in pimples and stuff. Um, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Like, my mum will, will come in and say, you look really stressed, and they're like, I'm not feeling stressed, but, like, look yeah, at your yeah. hands, you've got eczema everywhere. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then I'll be stressed. like, oh, I'm probably stressed, maybe I should do something about it now, but... I've had, like, a lot of problems, like, getting anxious, um... Becoming disassociated with anxiety, mm. which means everything sort of all emotions get delayed um, for later on. But then, um, which can be good sometimes, but in the long term, once it's you, you're sort of delaying feeling emotions for quite a while, it builds up, and then it's like you can't you, you can't identify where the stress is coming from anymore because it's built up for so long. And, and does does that tend to make you more stressed when when you're when you're feeling something and you don't know why you're feeling it? Yeah, I think that is more distressing because mm. to talk about an emotion, you have to people. You generally have to know what's causing it and get the and get the name of the emotion mm. right, which is something else I find difficult. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the bit that I I mm. always struggled with, which was um, I I couldn't pinpoint why I was feeling a certain way, and th- and that really aggravated me because it's it it just seems like there has to be a reason. For why you feel the way that you do, otherwise, like you have no control over your mind or something. That 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 was very testing times for me as a teenager. Mm. I think. Um, just because we've mainly been talking about negative emotions, what about positive emotions? What about like feeling happy and stuff, or, or like if you are interested in someone or interested, like like how have you guys found that? <laughs> And then is he laughing over there, Sarah? <laughs> well, she's obviously feeling happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling happy. That's it. Um, <laughs> just a just a, a phys- yeah, yeah, as, a, as a physical expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you guys have ever been in the same situation, but I find a lot of the time, like especially like receiving gifts or like birthdays, I'm really bad at showing excitement. Then, yes, like, showing that I'm interested in it. Cause, like, oh, cool, a gift. But like, oh, it's just like, oh, just another birthday, you know. And like mm. everyone else is just like, oh, that's that's all I'm getting from you. <laughs> you suck. <And> like, <laughs> but like it's yeah, it's kind of like yay, but you don't know how to show it. Yeah, it's kind Thanks of like um, we'll, we'll talk about media a bit um, later in the show, but it's a bit like one of the episodes of The Big Bang Theory where um, Sheldon is, uh, I think she's Penny's Chris Kringle, and he buys like four different sized presents of the same thing so he can grab one of them which matches the level of appreciation that he has to show. Eventually Penny <laughs> Penny gives him this napkin signed by Leonard Nimoy, the person that plays Spock, and he brings out all four of them and thinks it's not enough. So he actually has to hug. So oh no, not hugging. So yeah, it, it can be it can be quite difficult to to be able to like you 
I think that's the mm, what that's uh, you explained what there, Sarah, yeah. because you kind of do have to show a bit of emotion, yeah, just yeah. just so you know that you other people know that uh, you appreciate what you, they've given you. Mm. But at the same time, you have to be a bit insincere about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's definitely what it feels like. So, um, should we go to another song? We have been speaking about some emotional problems. So, um, if you are dealing with stress or um, you know really severe uh, emotional issues, please contact Lifeline on thirteen eleven fourteen. Our next topic of discussion today is physical contact, specifically boundaries, physical contact and inherent contradictions, and why physical contact is so important. Would you like to answer that last question, Julia? Well, yeah. Um, I think the first thing about physical contact is consent. Don't just go and randomly hug me. That's probably just not a thing you should do. Not not if you're on the spectrum or a friend of someone. Well, actually, I think this is for every, every anyone, really. I mean... Imagine if someone just randomly hugged you, even if they're your friend, just out of nowhere. Just like completely on a side note. Yeah. um, I had a friend who was, who is on the autism spectrum disorder and she had, she was like the opposite of, I guess what you're saying. And she would have this thing where she would go up and hug people all the time. Like every time she would see them, it would be like hugs. Mm. And I was like, no hugs, please no. So it was like, yeah, just kind of like, and I was like, my friends and I, we hug. I don't just hug, hug a random stranger who I've just met. Mm, mm. You, you've got to kind of build a rapport with that person and then you hug. Yeah, I, mm. I, I don't know how um, what you guys would think of this theory, but I would almost feel most secure with physical contact having asked the person I'm about to make contact with, are we at that stage in the friendship or relationship? <laughs> just, yeah. just so you yeah. have complete clarity. I mean, that might sound a bit weird, but I, you might know I, for sure I, before doing I it, wouldn't you? That's what I always do. Like, I always do that too. If I've got a, I've got a bunch of friends on the autism spectrum, it's quite funny because I'll go up, hug this one, hug this one, shake hands with this one, wave at this one, and my mum watches and is so amused. I'm like, because yeah. that's what, what they're comfortable with, the, with the level of contact. It's, it's deal, a, yeah. Is it like different stages? First it's a wave, then it's a handshake. It depends on the so person. Then it's a high five. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is my stage one friend. A few of my stage twos over there. Oh, come here, you big stage five. That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we'll get to that, but obviously that it's... Um, it does help to know just the different levels of greeting yeah. in the yeah. future. It depends mm. on the person too. Like some mm. friends I've got big hug from day one. They just wanted a hug. But other friends are very, I'm very close to known for a long time, but because of the tactile sensitivities, we don't hug. So mm. it is like a wife and someone who would, a much less close friend might get a hug. It's more mm. just what pe- other people are comfortable with. Mm. You think. know when um, you speak to some friends as well and like you just they just kind of touch your arm? Sometimes, occasionally. Yeah. Oh, that drives me nuts. Like... Yeah. Like, I, I understand, like, and I, I kind of accept it because I'm like, okay, you're just trying to be close and friendly with me. Mm. So, yeah. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, I can't, I don't do it back, which mm. is probably what you're supposed to do. But, like. It's, it should be what know, you are comfortable with. I think it's though. really exactly. weird, too, because, like, you kind of have to get closer to each other then. To like touch their arm, and it's just like, please, not so close as well. Yeah, yeah, like you can't do like reach out your hands and you can't do the t- Billy Bowden four yeah, no, thing. Uh, no jazz fingers. No. Um, yeah, and like, and also like, I guess it's okay. Like once you've become really good friends with someone, 
Mm. You know, mm. like. But but until mm. then, we're all a bit like those guys on a first date in the cinema, where the guy is just hovering <laughs> a hand over the girl's shoulder, not sure whether he should put his arm around her yet or not. Yeah, definitely. Something I also find: how difficult was it being in your teenage years and watching all the popular kids hugging? Like, oh my god! The, the guys hugging the girls, like, yeah, look how cool we are. We pulled these chicks. That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that when just I was, threw I was, my, at, I was totally a, out of balance. I was at a private girls' school. Well, it's not a girls' school anymore, but it used to be single sex, and then it became co-ed, which was kind of interesting. Mm. And um, yeah, they basically just went on top of each other all the time. What? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. pretty much. Like all the time. Mm. And I'm like, okay, yes, you, yes, we are in a hallway. And you're hugging and then kind of rolling down and screaming. Well, I, I, had, I, I have went to a co-ed school the whole time, my, my entire high school years. So I was, kind of, I was kind of used to there being both sexes in the corridor. But when it got to the point of, like, hugging, kissing public displays of affection, that just seemed weird to me, especially having just come out of a few social skills classes and basically being told exactly what we began with, don't touch unless you have the consent of people. Mm-hmm. That just, like, it, it threw my the entire rule book out the window in a way that, I, I don't know, I think it would almost be better just to kind of um, completely turn your eyes off to that sort of thing if you're on the spectrum. Yeah. Because it just makes it too difficult to know which I set mean, of rules you're following. I think exactly. it's mm. hard because people who aren't on the spectrum get the context. Or sometimes mm. some of the yeah. autism spectrum might not get the context. While well, well, a minute ago it was okay to hug this person, now it isn't. It can be more confusing. Or like mm. if you if you consider yourself an equal to a guy that's just hugged a girl, and then you go up and do the same thing and get mm. rejected, you're yeah. left wondering exactly what the difference is, and you'll have an identity crisis. Like, oh, what did I, what did I misread there? What am I not doing correctly? Am I somehow inferior? It just, it just seems a lot easier, and if you wait until everyone's kind of evened out with the whole body contact thing because mm. you are exploring mm. it a lot when you're in your teenage years. And then but... it kind of disappears when you go to uni. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. People are a lot less, you know, touchy-feely. Like, you I mean, know? like, if someone's dating, yeah, they're mm. probably, like, holding hands and stuff. Mm. But at the same but time... Then and they're the... more discreet about that than they yeah, would be exactly. in and I, so think, I think I think like, high school relationships yeah. are more of like a um, social status thing than yeah yeah like look at me I finally managed to you know get a girlfriend or get yeah. a boyfriend <laughs> yeah and like so many other things once once you get past year twelve once you get past high school it fails to have any relevance whatsoever mm, exactly and then Thank and God. that's and that's <laughs> really yeah. good because then like you know if you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend like yeah you have you know you're like close obviously yeah. But then it's not like every single friend is just like on top of each other all the time no. for no reason. Mm. We've just just but yeah yeah. <laughs> VCE exams are going on at the moment. One of the subjects that they don't tell you about that goes for all of high school is social interaction. Mm. We all deserve a ninety nine point nine five enter score just for passing that. I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely making it to the end. Yeah, yeah. making it to the end without with like a, with an added difficulty. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. So um, we are gonna get play a song and then we're going to play our interview um, which is with the disabilities officers from 2000 well for next year so 2015 at Monash University that's um, Andrew Day and Edie Shepherd but first so we are with Edie Shepherd and Andrew Day from Monash University and they have just been elect- elected the the first disabilities officers in Monash University MSA 
which is really awesome. How are you guys today? Yeah, it's Andrew's birthday. Wow, birthday. awesome. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Great day today, definitely. Um, so <laughs> what, what, what do you think, you'll, uh, what are some of your plans for next year, some of your first plans? Oh, Andrew, do you want to feel this a lot? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I can start. Um, we'll have a lot of work getting disability uh, sort of sorted out within on campus. This is the first time a disability collective has existed as well as the disabilities office. So we're going to have to be doing a lot to make sure people know who we are and who can use our services and be advocated for by us. So that's probably going to be the big thing that we do next year in our first year. So uh, what, what made you two want to be the disabilities officers for next year? At around this time last year, because at the moment Andrew and I are current office bearers in different positions, so Andrew runs the student paper and I'm the women's officer, and we were sitting around at training, and I went, wouldn't it be cool if we had a disabilities officer? And Andrew turned to me, we didn't know each other, and just mm. went, yeah. And then it just kind of went from there. So this time last year, Andrew and I were meeting each other, being like, wouldn't this be a neat idea? And now here we are. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. So campaigning this year, um, what was it like campaigning, you know, first to actually get a referendum up, then to get the referendum passed and then get elected by the Monash Student Council. So what was that process like? Long. <laughs> very, very long. Yeah, long. Um, it took a lot of finickety, bureaucratic awfulness. Um, we spoke to a lot of people. We had a lot of informal meetings being like, how do you feel about this? Which was fun. <laughs> uh, lots of emails being bounced to and forth between lawyers, particularly on the constitutional referendum. Um, although I should say the people who helped the people who helped us out were very nice, very helpful. Um, I, sadly, I struggle to imagine this of happening any other year, but it yeah. happen now. It kind of goes to show it really does take a village in these sort of things. Not lots of not on the fly stuff. Many many nice, careful planning and agenda setting and. Just making sure everyone's on board with it, I suppose. Um, so, did you get any inspiration or just ideas from um, people at La Trobe or, or Monash, uh, not Monash, sorry, Melbourne, to help you go about making this happen? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We had lots and lots of chats to Serena and Jess, who were this year's disabilities officers over at Melbourne. Yeah, they were great. They put us in contact with a lot of people, gave us a lot of suggestions as to, like, which parts of the university we should talk to. We all used their constitution as a bit of a launch pad to try and figure out ours because their collective is so well entrenched in its first year because this is their first year as well. So, yeah, no, Melbourne Uni helped us a lot. Thanks, Amsu. So informal talks with um, people and organisations, what was what did you find helpful? Have, have other office bearers been helpful? Um, well, we could we really could not have done this without the support of our executives. So that's president, treasurer, secretary. Like, if you don't have them on board, it's pretty much a roadblock. So we were so lucky this year because this is the first year that we've had, I guess, a fully supportive executive for this. There are people who are like, that's a nice idea in theory, but particularly Ben, who's our president, like, as soon as we mentioned it to him this time last year, it was like, yeah, do it, just do it. And then we did, like, it was amazing because this isn't the first time that the idea has been floated. Ben was just amazing, incredibly supportive, mm. as well as Sinead, our treasurer. Mm. 
Fantastic. So uh, how would you say uh, disabilities are understood at the, uh, on the Manish University campus in general? Poorly. Um, <laughs> Reason for you guys existing, right? Yeah, <laughs> more or less. Uh, um, sadly, even in terms of trying to get an informal collective going on campus, um, we've encountered people who are sort of like, you know, oh, I have mental health stuff, does that fall under sort of the disability umbrella? Or Ooh. I don't really like the term, and it's kind of like, well, that's something, you know, there is a lot of stigma around the term. You, uh, understand not wanting to closely attach yourself to it, but if anything stops you from being able to perform at university that doesn't stop anyone else, you would benefit from our services. So it's, yeah, just trying to get past that and getting people past that and getting people involved has been a big difficult. That's probably been one of the larger problems. Yeah, and even if we get down to the sort of gritty theoretical stuff, which can get really dense, when you're looking at disabilities, critical disability theory or whatever, the general consensus of society operates under a medical model. So if you are disabled, your your body is sort of picked apart and dissected and you're like, you're defined by your impairments or whatever, whereas it's really hard to sort of convey that in the disabilities department we're trying to, I guess, promote a social model, which is, which is like, in a nutshell, the idea that, you know, you fall under this umbrella if you are ostracized or you are made like or if your life is generally harder due to just another variation in the very wide spectrum of what a human can be um and that's a really hard thing to convey that we're not like you have to be in a wheelchair or you have to be diagnosed with this yeah that it's it's a very hard thing to try and convey particularly when you know the university's idea of disability is you know stacks and stacks of proof up to your eyeballs, like hundreds and hundreds of dollars of consultations to be able to get into the DLU and get registered and that sort of thing. It's something that is a, it's a massive problem and it's a massive culture, like ingrained cultural thing. It just happens everywhere, which is really, really aggravating. Yeah, um, well, we have, if you're a Monash student and you identify as disabled or a carer, we have a Facebook group for the collective now, so you can find us at MSA Disability and Carers Collective if you plug that into Facebook, so you can track us down. Um, otherwise, shoot us an email and we can get you in touch. So our email is monash.disabilities2015 at gmail.com at the moment. That'll probably change eventually when we get our proper Monash one next year. But yeah, for the moment, if you want to be involved, find us on Facebook, shoot us an email, we would love to have as many people on board as possible. Awesome, thank you for speaking to us. We are going to be talking about autism and the media. Now, there will be some discussion points that have a content warning. Um, content warning specifically for murder. Um, so if this is a, a topic that you know you do not feel comfortable listening to, please tune out. Um, so this, we... this is also going to be, sorry to interrupt, but this is going to be an interesting one to speak about as well, Julia, because you and I are coming from journalism degrees. Yeah. Oh, I'm not doing a journalism degree. I'm, I'm just kind of, um, I'm interested in media. Oh, and I... You and I both being interested in media will have quite a bit of sympathy for the work that the media does in terms of all the pressures on it. And yeah. so, I don't know, Sam and Sarah might have a couple of um, qualms about how it's portrayed, mm, we might yeah. be able As to offset that. As consumers of the media. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, my basic thing is I think journalists are doing, in general, the best job they can do um, when it comes to 
autism in the media. I mean, tabloids will be tabloids. That's probably one of the worst things ever that I've said. Kind of boys will be boys, tabloids will be tabloids. But like, it's got a good ring to it. Yeah. I mean, tabloids, of course, are going to be horrible to autistic people. They're horrible to basically any minority or oppressed group or disability group. So we're not Robinson Crusoe there. Mm. Um, but like, I mean, I'm going to be going and looking at like the most extreme cases in regards to autism. So the two most extreme cases is when an autistic person does something terrible and when a parent of an autistic person does something terrible to an autistic person. Hmm. Um, so with the Adam Lanza case, um, which is probably um, quite horrible, um, obviously, we have a, a person who is on the autism spectrum doing something very, very evil. Just for some context for listeners, Adam Lanza was the man who uh, went to Sandy Hook Primary School in Connecticut in December 2012. And, um, well, he killed over 25 people, including himself. Yeah. Um, like, I think, the, I think the rule is don't mention autism in the headline. Never mention autism in the headline. Never mention it in the first sentence either. It's exactly. a peripheral detail mostly. It is peripheral detail. And also it, it doesn't... Just because a person who has done something terrible happened to be autistic does not mean that the autism actually was the thing that made the person did the, do the thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's kind of like um, thinking that all Muslims are extremists because of some minority extremist group that has done something terrible. I mean, we can't paint um, everything from one minority on the worst person in that minority. It's interesting that you um, compare it to Muslim extremism because I think in the media's portrayal of both issues, we face the same problem and that's underrepresentation, little understanding mm -hmm. of um, the condition of like both of the religion of Islam and of the autism spectrum. So I'm guessing, and um, back me up if you agree, girls, but the the key to making media portrayal of or the autism spectrum more appropriate, more accurate, is better educating them. Yeah, better educating and also actually having more people in the autism spectrum um, being represented in the media themselves. This is why great minds don't think alike exists. Mm. Um, so, you we're know... Doing, we're helping as much as we can, guys. <laughs> this is this is basically why um, shows like this exist, because, you know, when something happens about autism or when someone says something about autism that is completely incorrect, what you need is someone who actually has autism to say, verify and say, no, this actually isn't true of most of us or this actually isn't true ever. Um, well, what are some examples, uh, I don't know, Sarah, uh, Sam, if you know some, examples of where they have tried to get experts on autism in the media? Like, is is that something that happens frequently or is it just left Not off the to top of my head, I don't think I, they... Yeah, I can't remember any time there um, was actually an expert in the media. I'm, I'm a horrible, like... I'm a horrible, I, I feel Sorry, really... Have... Sorry, go ahead. I, I am someone who, who really follows up on a lot of um, not very nice stories. Unfortunately, this this week we are actually mourning the death of a six-year-old autistic person um, in America who was killed by his mother um, this week, which is very upsetting. Um, rest in peace, London McCabe. Um, in response to that, a um, I can't remember the woman's name, but she is a psychologist on autism and she said in a public statement that she is surprised that there aren't more autistic parents killing their children and that is a very very problematic thing to say um, with her authority 
because that it's basically victim blaming to the worst degree. Um, what did she use to quantify that statement? She was saying that um, these people, these severely autistic people, um, cannot have relationships, reciprocal relationships, reciprocal, yeah, with other people, and that is why they can't have a relationship with the parents. So, you know, this is why this thing happens, which is a really dehumanising thing to say. Um, and, it, it just yeah. suggests a lack of education from someone that's meant to be very well educated. Exactly. The, the problem is, like someone says they're a psychologist, people in the public think, oh, they must be an expert in autism, but that's actually they not true. They must know what they're talking about. Psycho- There's different types of psychologists. The most common ones people are aware of are clinical psychologists who specialise in mental health. But autism is not a mental illness, so clinical psychologists are not well trained in autism at all. Like I've got, I've got an undergraduate degree in psychology, so I'm not a psychologist. I've got half the training, the first half, and all I learned about autism was one two-hour lecture in the three years of studying psychology. That's pretty amazing, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So people think, oh, psychology, you must might know all about autism, but that's not the case at all. Like that, like, yeah. yeah. It's mm. like saying you know all about sharks because you went fishing once. That sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, and psychiatrists are very similar. People think some psychiatrists know a lot about autism, but they're they're very few. The majority are not trained in autism. They're trained in medicine and mental illness, but they don't have any training in autism. So just because someone says they're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counsellor doesn't mean they actually know anything about autism that someone in the general public wouldn't know. It, yeah. it would be interesting to know, because obviously, uh, very briefly have a look at um, the media's role in this particular case, which is they, they picked this expert who clearly wasn't representative of the issue. Where do you think the media should look for the future I think I think the important thing is balance, and um, we have to have have a variation of different views. I mean, even though I find that view of that psychologist completely abhorrent, we need to have the full spectrum of views. And what is really important is to have autistic advocates who are actually autistic to be speaking. In America, there is a group called ASAN. Um, they're a really really good campaigning group. Um, run by Ari Neiman, you know, they they have statements and stuff. If there's going to be someone like that, there needs to be a statement from Assan to back it up, um, to, to kind of like, you know, it's a, bit like, it's a bit like political parties. If there's someone from Labour speaking about something, you need someone from Liberal to speak about something. Same story here. If you've got, like, the non-autistic people who have these quite harsh views, you need to have someone who's actually on the spectrum, who's actually an autism advocate to... It, no, it would have been good to have actual parents. Uh, I'm not sure if they did, but parents of people on the spectrum, because I think the vast majority of parents of people on the autism spectrum would not consider murder as a, as something appropriate no. at all. I would be horrified at that, of like everyone not. else. Yeah, I'd actually like to know what role, like there are now there are now tests you can do, aren't there, that um, can like predict whether your child will have autism oh. or not. Also, I, f- I found the exact quote. So um, the person who said the quote um, is D. Shepard Look, psychology professor at California State University, um, who runs an 
education group for mothers of autistic children. And she said, quite frankly, I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. These children are really unable to be in a reciprocal relationship with their mums, don't really experience the love that comes back from the child. The bonding is mitigated. And that is... That is no. One mm. thing that really makes me annoyed is the way she says, like, the bonding is mitigated or, you know, like, they, they can't reciprocate. Like, uh, look, I'm sure this child loved their, their exactly, mother. Exactly. That's what I'm but trying to say. As we've been but saying. But they differently. Yeah. Exactly. And um, so I feel like putting the emphasis on, say, the child, you know, not being capable like that is just... It's it's entirely miss, missing the point, essentially, yeah. and um, it's and it's really annoying as an autistic person is when something like this happens. People are telling us to be empathetic towards the parents. Oh, the parents! They didn't have enough funding. They didn't have enough support, which is true. Which is an issue. Which is a really itself, big issue. Yeah. But this is an issue that can only be solved if people are actually speaking to autistic people, uh, like if autistic people and autistic and parents of autistic people were actually working together and actually saw each other as equals and actually worked hard together. This is stuff that they could fix rather than creating stigma. And, um, and also it's kind of, if I think Asan said a statement like this, um, they said, in, in regards to the Kelly Stapleton case, um, you know, saying that you're, you're going to kill your, your child um, because you, don't, you aren't getting enough funding, is, it's basically ransom. You're using a child for ransom and you're devaluing their life because of their disability. And, I mean, it is, it is really hor- horrible. And it's, I mean, I, I found out about the London McCabe um, story literally after I finished my last assignment of university this year. And I'm really happy. And then I saw it on my Facebook page and I'm just like, oh, crap, crap. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back to um, the, the media's role in mm. all of this. That's um, I don't, We stereoty- haven't done much with stereotypes. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <sighs> I guess stereotypes are... Are very easy. Just just coming from a, yeah, yeah. a bachelor of journalism perspective, they they just make your job so much easier if you're in the media because you don't have to put in all those extra hours of research when you have a deadline that's three hours away. And what you really need to do is be getting the copyright, getting the sources there. If there's an extra sentence that you don't have to give an hour to, that's just a godsend essentially. Mm. So that's that's why stereotypes get used relating to people on the autism spectrum in the media. I'm pretty sure. But um, I'm sh- I think the question uh, we want to um, discuss here and potentially answer is which of those stereotypes are dangerous and which might actually be helpful or which could be retained. Like, what's, what's something that you can always see in the media relating to people on the autism spectrum that really shouldn't be there? Um, the whole we don't have feelings thing is probably one of the most um, detrimental uh, stereotypes possible because what happens mm. is say in the worst case scenario as we, we've been going to worst case scenarios um, if the parent kills the kid oh they didn't have feelings this is why and then um, if we have an Adam Lanza case which is one person who probably didn't have feelings oh it's because all autistic people don't have feelings but he's no different in not having appropriate feelings to Elliot Roger the man who mm. um, who he went on a similar killing spree this year. And he he didn't have. Actually, this is another really problematic case because when that happened, um, at first they were saying he had high functioning autism. Then, of course, later on they realised he didn't. So we've 
It's an example. We've of got just a bit of a we've got a bit of a Jay Z kind mm. of you know Jay Z ninety nine problems thing coming over here. You know instead but of saying ain't one that sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like um you know um because because I'm young and I'm black and my hat's too low. Now it's because we're young, raspy, and yeah. we're we're not really smiling. You should make that so. a promo. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, no, I, I kind of uh, get what you mean there. And we were talking about this a bit before the show, how um, mental illness, is particularly the autism spectrum, is always used almost as a way of explaining the action, yeah. as if it's completely associated with the crime committed. And it's it's a thing, because it's a human nature thing to try to find an answer to something, and um, especially if something horrible has happened. Um, but, like, sometimes the answer is not as clear-cut as, oh, this person was mentally disturbed because, oh, look, Asperger's syndrome. Um, yeah, you also I think have it's, to... Yeah, I think it's that people are scared, like, when there's a crime like that. No one wants to think that they could be capable of that. So if you pick, like, a mental illness or autism and say that was the reason, it's almost like, oh, I don't have to worry, I'll never do that because I don't have that. Yeah, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, this was quite... It was quite interesting when um, the lands of... Um, case happened because that was when I was starting um, doing a little bit of um, news reading at Sin. Um, so that was like early kind of getting into journalism phase. It was Happy really times, interesting yeah. um, time to like start to learn more journalism stuff because that was Jill Ma, Adam Lanza and Malala Yousafzai getting shot. So all the interesting things have definitely shaped um, uh, journalism and, and, and stuff. Um I, I was kind of, yeah, it was a horrible, horrible case for me, particularly because my mum is a teacher and I, I felt probably more empathetic and more horrified because, you know, uh, having a, a mum who's a teacher, like, I can't think of anything worse than that happening. Like, I can't think of anything worse than, you know, that Not happening. being able to protect your yeah. students sort of thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually got diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome December 2012. So as soon as <gasps> the week I was diagnosed, I'm like, okay, I'll Google this. And <laughs> oh, all this stuff came up about this this guy with Asperger's syndrome who, you know, who shot Lanza, young yeah. kids. And that was all that was on Google. The first page of Google was all about that. What a, what a great example to illustrate why... It's so important that you you portray the autism spectrum properly, though. Yeah. Because if if that was your introduction to Asperger's and this is what you saw, very negatively skewed your your understanding of what you had. You mm. would have thought that you mm. were predisposed to become a criminal, essentially. And, and that's that is not how people on the spectrum should be made to live with themselves. Exactly. And um, yeah. it was really interesting because um. A friend of mine, um, he convened um, the the Maspies, which I think we interviewed him a couple of weeks back. And um, there was a scene that was about um, when that happened and kind of the feelings that a lot of autistic people had. And I, I definitely think that, you know, just the idea of, no, we aren't evil and we don't want people to think that and kind of being kind of almost scared of the way you think because of it, which... You know, obviously, I haven't got a single bone in my body that wants to kill anyone, ever. (laughs) I feel a bit bad whenever I kill a fly. I mean, I'm not really... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, the rates of uh, murder and autism are exactly the same as murder and people who aren't on the spectrum. Exactly. Like, you can have autism. Mm. It doesn't prevent you mm. from, from, from from committing murder, but it doesn't increase the likelihood at all. Didn't Derek say something? But those statistics in the media? I don't know. I was just sort of thinking about, like... Media stereotypes, 
Like, I know we've talked about, like, murderers a lot, but even when you have this stereotype of a person with autism being, like, really antisocial, really geeky, like, sure, there are people on the autism spectrum like that, but I think when you say, like, that's, like, your cutoff point, like, I think you exclude a lot of people. And, like, we are so not geeky, by the way. Yeah, exactly. One thing I've noticed is if you say you've got Asperger's syndrome to someone who has no, no awareness of it, um, the first point they turn to is Sheldon from the Big Bang yeah, yeah. Theory. That is because they know, yeah, yeah, and they go, "Well, why aren't you know you like him?" And you're like, "Because autistic people aren't like that." That's that's you know, why it's called an autism spectrum. Yeah, yeah. You're on a vast range, and you each occupy a different section of. Hello, it. look at me. I yeah. study visual art and yeah. <laughs> politics. Which, is like, which I guess that's the problem with stereotypes than the media jumping to them. It's because that pigeonholes or mm. people. In, into one group, I but um, and I, people on the spectrum often pigeonhole the autism spectrum too. Mm. Oh, that's so annoying as well. I've had some people on the spectrum come up to me and say, "What's your special interest?" <laughs> and expects me to be a savant on some area because I've got autism. And that is another mm. issue yeah. as well: is that you either have horrible, horrible representation, basically saying autism is terrible, autism is terrible. Then you're like, autism is basically a superpower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What yeah. were you going to say there? By the what way, what was I going to say? Like. I was going to say, like, you, sure, you get this representation, but, like, I think it can make even disclosure tricky because you go, okay, if I tell them that I have autism, they're going to think I'm, go- like, Sheldon. But it's like, no, that's not true. Like, I'm a friendly person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm capable of forming, you know, quite meaningful relationships mm. with people. I guess, like, people like Sheldon Cooper and, like, Don Tillman from the Rosie mm. Project, more locally, they're good in getting people to, to sympathise or at least have a have a positive attitude towards people on the spectrum but where where that association needs to stop is thinking that that represents everyone on the yeah, spectrum yeah. and i went to a wheeler center thing with um uh gray simpson this week and he was saying yeah there is only a couple of stereotypes that keep that seem to be keeping going and going again we need to have more people who are writing about people on the spectrum and there needs to be more diversity um he is aware that yes he has kind of gone to the trope of you know geeky genetics professor but that was mainly because he like he wanted to make money out of that book and he mm. he he based it on some other popular representations so people would consume it straight away that's that's I what think i also, see yeah he had a background working in it as well yeah and so he yeah, was comes, saying he's drawing from there yeah, as well he I was think, saying yeah. in the thing that um it kind of happened actually accidentally he was talking about geeks and then mm geeks turned into autism um but he was also saying because he has had since writing the book he has had more experience with autistic people it's like well that it's it's a it's a broad spectrum there needs to be more mm. people writing and more people writing about different characters and this is probably where his level of expertise is probably above his level of expertise mm. um but that means that yeah we need we need more people writing stuff that is different Anyway, um... And some people on the autism spectrum are geeky. For some people, mm, it is ac- and, accurate. And that's it's, fine, yeah. Yeah, it's... We've got our, our, our producer, Callum, just kind of <laughs> being like, yes, it's me! Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a fine representation it's to have. It's producer, Cal, here. I swiped my nerd card as soon as I got it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a fine representation to have. Of, you can have someone in the mm. media who is geeky and autistic. It's about, it's, it's, about, it's, it's a bit like, you know, yeah. all gay men are effeminate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there like, are a lot of effeminate gay men. Mm. But not all of them are. But not all of them are. It's just having the balance. Not all of us are. Yeah, not every single person (laughs) in the media 
being geeky, just the, the balance mm. thing. That's yeah, important. Which I think there is a there could be more balance. Anyway, so yeah. we have had a really good show today, um, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for on Great Minds Don't Think Alike. Remember to like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Great Minds on Sin, and you can follow us on Twitter, GMDTASYN. We podcast all of our shows plus spe- best special features like full interviews for our Sin webpage www.sin.org.au forward slash great minds don't think like also um, we have been speaking about some difficult topics um, if you do need to speak to someone call lifeline um, 1411 sorry wait what? 13 11 14 <laughs> 13 11 14 and also kids helpline is also great 1-800-55-1800 um, stay tuned unlabeled is next you are with Sarah Sam Alex Julia and Cal kind of in the background there. <laughs> Little cameo from Cal, yeah. Um, Thanks very much for listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike on Sin Nation. <laughs>